would please rise with me for the scripture reading. Our sermon text this morning comes from Micah, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler of Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we are in the third week of Advent And Advent is a season of dissonance. Do you know that? It is a season when the tone inside the church clashes with the tone of the world around us. While everything out there is covered with lights, while the radio stations are singing about Santa Baby and All I Want for Christmas is You, Advent focuses our attention on a broken world. It focuses our attention on a world that is in need of a savior. There's an Episcopalian author named Fleming Rutledge, and one of the things that she likes to say is that Advent begins in the dark. Advent begins in the dark, and and it does. Literally, it begins in the dark. This is the time of year when things are dark. You look up, it's 6 o'clock, and it already feels like bedtime because it's been dark so long. But also thematically, it begins in the dark. It begins talking about, well, this word, Advent. What even is it? It's a Latin word. It means coming. And we're talking about the coming of Jesus. To do what? To repair this dark world. To repair this broken place where we live. Advent's not focused on twinkling houses and Christmas trees. But it's focused on a real world, a world with pain, a world with sorrow, a world with sin and death and division and strife. It is focused on a world that needs somebody, that needs somebody who has power and who has authority, who can come and fix this mess, who can come and repair the damage that humanity has done, who can come and mend our broken hearts. Advent invites us, even while we're enjoying those Christmas parties, even while we're decorating our house with those lights, it invites us to look honestly at the world around us and to put our hope, not in the presents that we're going to get in a few weeks, but to put our hopes in Jesus. But how do we do that? What does that even really mean? Well, this morning, we're going to look at this prophecy from the book of Micah, and and as we do that, 
uh, it's going to show us that, that Advent requires us to look at Jesus as a king. And to look at Jesus as a king, well, there's a few things we got to do. First, we have to understand what that means. We have to understand that Jesus is a long-prophesied king. Then we also need to understand what it means to have Jesus as a king. What, what does it mean that Jesus is a king? And then finally, we have to know, we have to understand how Jesus rules. So let's get right into that. Jesus is the long-prophesied king. Uh, this book that we read from is Micah. And Micah was written somewhere around 700 B.C. And if you get a chance to go read it, you'll find that much of Micah is re records of judgment. Uh, prophecies of judgment written to the leaders of that day. But this passage, these few verses that we just read, are a little different. These verses are universally recognized as messianic prophecies. They are verses that told the Jewish people about a coming king who would one day show up and he would rescue and he would redeem and he would restore God's people. And you've probably heard at least one of these verses before because it's famously quoted in the beginning of Matthew. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 2 when the wise men show up and they're trying, they've heard that this Messiah has been born and they're trying to figure out where he might be and they go to speak with King Herod and it says Herod, he calls the, the experts in the law and they show up and they pull out their scripture and they read this verse and it tells them where you can find the Messiah. And so that tells us that and other ancient documents tell us that for thousands of years, this passage, and for at that time, hundreds of years, this passage in Micah, it, people saw this as a prophecy about a future king. They knew that this told them about the Messiah who was going to come. So let's just really quickly look at, at that verse and see what it tells us. It says in verse, the beginning of verse 2, if you've got your Bibles, you can pull them out. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler of Israel. All right, first, very basic, it says he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a small town outside of Judea. It wasn't significant for its size, but it was significant because another great king was born there, right? King David was born in the town of Bethlehem. And he was the greatest king Israel had ever known. He was a king that, Scripture tells us, was a man after God's own heart. And even more importantly than that, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a promise to David where he told him that one day, one of his descendants would come and establish his throne forever. He was going to come from Bethlehem. But secondly, it tells us this. Out of you will come for me a, one who will be ruler of Israel whose origins are from of old. From ancient times. So, can you get your minds around that? It says, <clears throat> out of you is going to come someone... There's, there's somebody who's coming soon. He hasn't come yet. He will be born at some future moment. 
It even says in the next verse that, in fact, there may be a long time before he comes. There's going to be a season where Israel will be abandoned. So this king, he's not going to be around for quite a while. But then it says, somehow, his origins are from of old. He hasn't even been born yet, but he is from ancient times. The prophet says there is this ancient king who is going to return to the throne and rescue his people. Now that story might sound a little familiar to you because it's, it's actually pretty incredible. That theme shows up all over uh, the great stories of our time, does it not? How often do we see this theme of the great king who's going to return and, and redeem the people? It's in everything. It's Lord of the Rings, the Lion King, it's Black Panther, right? Do you remember the sword in the stone? There's this sword and, and it's stuck inside of this rock, but one day the true heir is going to come and, and this, this sword that no one has ever been able to move, well, well, he'll be able to pull it out and he will be our great king. He will be the deliverer that we've been waiting for. Why is that such a powerful story? Why are those our favorite books? Why are those our favorite movies? Well, I think it's because they all point to something that we all recognize deep down. That this world is not right. That we are in a desperate state. We see it all the time, don't we? Our loved ones die. There's violence and war and hatred and racism and famine and all of these terrible things happening in front of our, our eyes every week as we turn on the news. And, and it's been that way. For as far as our memories go back, this world has been an unceasing flow of heartache. And the prophet here, he says that when the Messiah comes, he won't just be any old ruler. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, and he will be our peace. That's the promise of a Messiah the Prince of Peace, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, the President to end all presidents. He won't be a politician making promises. He will be the realization of our deepest hopes and desires. He's not a work of fiction. He's not T'Challa or Aragorn or, or King Arthur. But he is the real leader that all of those characters are reminding us we want so badly. He's going to be the shepherd who protects us. Who ushers in everlasting peace. Don't we want that? Haven't we been waiting for a leader like that for all of history? Well, the good news of scripture is he was promised he has come, and he's coming again. And it's amazing. 
You know, this is just one of many passages in the Old Testament. Words that were recorded hundreds of years before Jesus ever came on the picture, and yet they were perfectly fulfilled by his life. This was written down by Micah, but 700 years later, in the small town of Bethlehem, outside of Jerusalem, the Messiah was born, just like God promised. He is the long-prophesied king. But what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is a king? What kind of king is he? Well, that's the second thing I want to talk to you about. What kind of king is Jesus? What does it mean that Jesus is the king? Well, you ever think about the words to the song, Joy to the World? It says, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart do what? Let every heart prepare him room. Let every heart prepare him room. What does that mean? Why does it say that? What's the author of that song trying to get at? I think it's a pretty keen observation, actually. Because it says, on one hand, the coming of this king is a joyous occasion. It's wonderful. It's this marvelous thing. The king has come. Jesus is here. He's finally here. But on the other hand, it reminds us that this king, his conflict is not only with the powers that be out there. His battle is not only with the evil and the messed up and the broken world that's all around us. But his conflict is within our own hearts. There isn't room for him there. We've got to prepare him room. We've got to make room for him because why? Well, because we don't want him to be our king. We want to be our own kings, don't we? No, we have no problem seeing all the big problems that are going on everywhere else. We have no problem realizing those need to be fixed. But do you know the reason behind all the big problems out there? Is it not in here? Right here. Inside of each one of us. Each and every one of us live in rebellion against the king. And how do we live in rebellion? Well, when you think about that phrase, living in rebellion against the king, you probably are thinking about the bad stuff. The way we live in rebellion against God, it's greed and addiction and violence and crime and, and lust. And yes, sure, those, that's true. Those are symptoms of our rebellion. But you know what most often keeps us from surrendering to Christ as a king? It's usually not overt, out there, bad things. It's usually just the opposite. It's not our badness, but it's our, it's our sense of goodness. It's our self-sufficiency. It's our pride. It's our own righteousness. 
usually the person who won't give up the throne of their life is not the person whose life is destroyed by all of their bad behavior. No, it's the person who says, hey, I'm doing a pretty good job on my own, thanks. I'm fine right here. I was thinking this week of the picture of uh, Disney's Robin Hood. Have you guys seen that cartoon? It may have been a while. I've seen every Disney movie recently. So... <laughs> But you remember, they have Prince John sitting on the throne of King Richard. And Prince John, is, he's a, like a, some kind of leopard or a cat or something, maybe a lion, I don't know. But he's very scrawny. And he's sitting on the throne, and he's bossing everybody around. And when he gets upset, he sucks his thumb and cries, yells at everybody. Everyone knows he's a terrible king. The difference between him and the real king, Richard, who when he shows up is this giant, massive lion, the difference couldn't have been greater. But he thought he was doing fine. That's what we're like. That is the picture of every man and woman on earth. When it comes to controlling our lives, we want to be on the throne, even if it looks ridiculous. So how does that change? Well, here's something I want to say. This is something that I think gets overlooked a little bit in modern preaching. See, if Jesus is king, well, it means he's king. And if you're sitting on the king's throne, when he walks into the room, he has a way of getting that spot if he wants it. Amen? If you're in the king's way, he has resources at his disposal. See, the gospel is a message of salvation. That is true. But do you know it's also a message of conquest? It's about a battle. A battle against Satan and sin and death and even the evil that is living in your own heart. It was a cosmic battle, a battle that spans all of human history. But that battle reached its climax on the cross when Jesus, who was the perfect son of God, was crucified. In that moment, we know that he took on the weight of the world. He bore the penalty for all of our wickedness. He bore the penalty for all of our false righteousness. And it was the death penalty. But then he rose again. And when he rose from the grave, it was proof that he won the war. That the king had conquered. And you know what? If he could do that, then he is not the least bit intimidated by you. He doesn't care if you're sitting in his seat. Charles Spurgeon, who I, I love to read his morning devotional, morning and evening, he, he wrote a reflection on what it means for a Christian to belong to God. And I may have shared this quote with you before, because honestly, it's one of my favorites. But listen to how he describes what it means to be conquered by Jesus. It says this, we are his by conquest. What a battle he had in us 
before we would be one. How long he laid siege to our hearts. How often he sent us the terms of surrender, but we barred our gates and we built our walls against him. Do we not remember that glorious hour when he carried our hearts by storm? When he placed his cross against the wall and scaled our ramparts, planting on our strongholds the blood-red flag of his omnipotent mercy. Yes, we are indeed the conquered captives of his omnipotent love. What does it mean that Jesus is king? It means that he's powerful. It means that he's almighty. It means that he is irresistible. And if he wants your service, he will have it. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords, the Messiah that Micah foretold is the ancient king. Come back from of old. And we, we are no match for him. That's the good news. The Westminster Catechism, it says that as Christ, what, what, as king, what Christ does is he subdues us to himself. He calls for himself a people out of the world. He builds for himself an everlasting kingdom by conquering us one at a time. And you know, that might sound a little scary. (laughs) If you don't know him, that might sound terrifying until you find out the way he rules. Let's talk about it. How does King Jesus rule us. As we look at this passage in Micah, we have a depiction of what life is like when Jesus is king. What were some of the highlights? It says that he's the shepherd of the flock, that all the people are living securely, that he is their peace Their peace isn't coming and going, but it is established. It might sound a little scary (laughs) to hear the way Spurgeon describes it. These very masculine pictures of, of castles being overthrown and the walls being scaled. But the image of his rule is just the opposite. Peace, security, tranquility, a life that is finally free from all the striving. A life where we're no longer trying constantly to prove that we belong in the center, that we belong on the throne. I know the idea of serving God terrifies you. It terrifies me. Because that's our fallen nature. We're hardwired that way. Do you realize it? Was that not the promise that the serpent made in the garden, you will be like God. That's what we want. But we were not made to be the king. We don't fit on the throne. And when we try, it's painful. What happens when we try? I'll tell you. Well, we end up living these lives where we're insecure. 
where we're overly sensitive when people point out our failings. We're angry. We're stressed out when we can't accomplish the goals that we have in our lives. We're fearful. We're anxious about all those things, all those people that we can't control. Can any of you relate to that? Have you felt that way lately? With a teenage child now, I find that I am constantly concerned with new people coming in and the influence that they're going to have on her life. I'm constantly concerned with the internet. And despite all of my efforts to filter it and protect it against it, there is a never-ending flow of information, a never-ending flow of all these dangers that, that are going to come in and they're going to shape my children's lives. And you know what? I, I can do my best, but if I try to rule it all, I just end up a nervous wreck. If I try to rule it all, I just end up an overbearing tyrant of a parent making my kids miserable I can't sit on the throne but when Christ is on the throne the burden of my lordship is lifted when Christ is on the throne of your life the burden of lordship is lifted that means you're free to follow him to to obey his commands but also to trust in his power I can trust in his power in my child's life and in my own. You can't live your life in his seat. You don't belong there. But when Christ comes, when he takes his throne, you can rest. You can relax while he rules, while he reigns. You can rest because he has given you his perfect record of real righteousness that has been established throughout all eternity. That means you don't have to rest on your little empire of dirt that you've been building for the last few years. Here's the end of that little quote from Spurgeon that I just shared. He says, this is what it's like when the king takes his throne. As those chosen who have been purchased and subdued, we know that the rights of our divine possessor are inalienable. And we rejoice that we can never be our own. And we desire day by day to do his will and to declare his glory. I love the end of that because what it says is the impact of knowing Christ as your king is freedom and joy. It's clarity of purpose in life. You were made to glorify him and to enjoy him. And that's what you get to do. See, we think about surrendering as a loss of power. We're scared because we don't want to give up control. But the opposite is true. The rule of King Jesus is different. He he brings freedom because he is the only one who conquers us at the cost of his own defeat. He gave up his life to give you life. 
And when you come into that kind of upside-down kingdom where everything is reversed, well, your surrender is actually the path to freedom. So let me ask you, who is the king of your heart? Really? Some of you probably will say it's Jesus. But maybe your life says something different. Internally, maybe your heart says something different. You don't have peace. You're not able to rest, and you know it. You're striving. You're fearful. Deep down, you are living like you're in control. Somewhere along the line, while you were calling yourself a Christian, you maybe didn't realize it, but you fashioned yourself a little paper crown, and you slowly nudged him out and took back the seat where you don't belong. Or maybe it's worse than that. Maybe you're at a place today where you are in outright rebellion. You say, I don't need a king. You might look good while you're sitting down in this room, but you know that you are living apart from him. And folks, that is a scary place to be. Wherever you might be this morning, I want to invite you to surrender. Maybe for the first time. Maybe for the first time in a while. Or maybe it's just another chance to surrender today. But I want to invite you to, to take off the barricade, open the doors of the castle, lay down your crown at his feet, and ask him to forgive your trees in his heart. And here's the great thing. He will. That's what the Messiah came to do. He came to turn outlaws into citizens. He came to give us peace. To reconcile us to God. That is what we remember at Advent. We are reminded at Advent that a long time ago, 2,000 years ago, a king who had been promised even long before that finally came. He came to rescue us from ourselves. He came to rescue us from this painful, broken world. And now is the time, today, in 2022, now is the time to respond to his invitation to bow. But just like Advent points us back, it also points us forward. And it reminds us that this king, he's going to return. He is not going to allow this suffering to go on forever. He is not going to let this rebellion against him continue indefinitely. The good king will come back to his throne, and with it he will bring justice. He's coming back. He's going to restore the world. And in that day, there will only be room for one person on the throne. Where will you be standing when that moment comes? Are you going to be with the people rejoicing at the return of the king? Or will you be standing in his way? Let's pray. Father, we are in awe of the way that you move through time and history.
the way that even in the midst of this horrible mess we've caused by our sin, you always have promised that you would come and redeem us and rescue us. That you would build us a pathway so that we could return to you, so that we could live lives that glorify you and honor you and exalt you the way we were created to. Lord, thank you. But I also pray, Lord, you'd forgive us because our memories are short. Sin has a grip on our hearts and we turn away from you so often. Father, we come back before you this morning and we ask that you would reclaim your rightful spot at the throne, at the center of our lives. Would you make us a people who show your glory to this world, who proclaim your kingdom and not our own. Lord, we pray that especially as we head in to these next few weeks of Advent, as we look at this world that is in such need of a Savior. Lord, would you start with us? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.